everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. Have you ever read a passage in the Bible that made you turn your head and say, what? Allow me to explain. I used to live in New England, and I couldn't believe how beautiful it was there. But there is so much about New England that I didn't know when I moved there. Fog, for example. I don't know what it's like where you live, but in New England, when the fog comes in, it's nuts. It gets foggy pretty easily, and it's a crazy fog. It can become so dense that you can't see what is right in front of you. I kid you not. And I remember driving by the beach and not being able to even see the ocean. How crazy is that? It was right in front of me. I mean, I could hear the waves rolling in and knew it was there, but I couldn't see it. It wasn't until this gentle breeze came in and that would blow the fog away that everything would become clear. And today, the passage that we're looking at is really a foggy one, especially at first glance, (laughs) a bit like being in New England. I've read through it over the years, and perhaps you have too, and didn't really grasp what was there. And at first glance, it is so confusing. I felt that I would just stare at it, and it could hear the faint sound of powerful waves underneath it, and yet I could not grasp its enormity. However... God has seen fit to send the gentle breeze of his spirit to drive away the clouds of confusion, enabling me to see this passage as never before. And I want to share it with you. It's a passage that really affects all of us because it really aims right at our hearts. It calls us to see God as God and not as something else, not something like a some type of cosmic genie or divine ATM or this this benevolent grandfather figure or the cosmic cop or judge. Not, not like anything like that at all, but seeing God as God, not some bandage over us or some power that can be controlled or manipulated if we have the right formula or some benefactor that we're trying to curry favor with. No, nothing like that. Today, actually, my hope is that we will see God at work calling to us, confronting us in every single sphere of our lives. As wives and mothers, husbands and fathers, singles and marrieds from all tribes and tongues, to take a long, good look in the mirror to see if we are truly followers of Jesus or simply spiritual posers, who only want God for what he gives us, not for who he is. And that is what we're going to look at today. And as you know, today's episode is brought to you in part by Derek Eastman of Derek Eastman Insurance Agency. If you're looking for life, home, or auto insurance, then Derek Eastman is your guy. Get a free quote from Derek Eastman in Sugar Grove, Illinois at 630-466-1144. Let's get to our passage. We are in Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through 25. Here we go. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. 
Everyone, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. We've come to an episode in scripture that I used to want to simply just skip over. It drove me crazy because it had some parts that were so controversial and even more so confusing. Let's start off in verse 9, and here you're going to get a real glimpse of this as we really delve into it. Again, a man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. This guy claimed he's one fantastic, amazing guy, and everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. And they listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. Okay, here we go. This is a man who responds to the message of Jesus. He had been into practicing magic. And I'm not talking about the sleight of hand magic that we see on you know, shows like America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent or whatever country's got talent, but real magic that the Bible condemns. Now, here's what I mean. The word magic is actually referred to six times in the Bible, three times in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament. However, the word magician or magicians is used 15 times. And there are several different synonyms for magic. Necromancer, fortune teller, and sorcery. The Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia and actually refers to the use of drugs for hallucinogenic purposes. In other words, any drug that was meant to get you high 
or hallucinating is commanded against. Sorcery, magic, mediums, necromancers, which is consulting dead people like the TV show Jonathan Edwards used to have, like crossing over and that kind of garbage, was meant to really have you talk to the dead, to get these insights. I mean, there were diviners, people were into witchcraft, these medicine men, shamans, and fortune-telling were all condemned in Scripture. And, and, and I'm really talking to people from all over the world because there are so many people that I've talked to that go to a pastor or go to some religious leader and have them pray for them, and if it doesn't work, then they go to the shaman or the witch doctor. And this is in the United States of America, not just in India or in Africa or in Mexico or wherever you are, but all over the world. How do we respond to that? I mean, the scripture does condemn it. Exodus 22:18, Leviticus 19:31, Deuteronomy 18:14. Or if you want to go into the New Testament, Galatians 5:20. Magic does have some power. Let's just lay that out right now. But it is demonic in origin. And that's, you can see that in Matthew 24, 24. We can see this in the Old Testament. Okay, we're going to go back for a moment. When Pharaoh's priests were trying to copy the plagues, you remember that? And that God was initiating through Moses. In fact, we see that they were able to do something similar to Moses. Three times this happened. They, okay, so here's what they did. They were able to turn their staffs into snakes, Exodus 7, 11. Turn water into blood. Exodus 7.22. And then they also had frogs come upon the land in Exodus 8.7. But when it came to the third plague of turning gnats into dust, they just couldn't do it, according to Exodus 8.18. Here, though, let's come back to the New Testament into our passage. We have the story of the Samaritan, Simon the Sorcerer. He's a pretty well-known guy in the area and to his community. He is, I mean, he commands a great deal of respect and is revered among the people for his ability to do great signs and wonders. But a curious thing happens. Philip, whom we saw just a a couple weeks ago, went to preach in Samaria, which is a big deal. Philip actually had power, and Simon knew that Philip had power he couldn't explain. He listened to the message of Philip as he shares Jesus, and he believes, or at least it looks like he does believe in Jesus. We will soon see that he's not really a true believer in Jesus for reasons that will soon become apparent. And the reason God gives this episode in the early church helps us to see that there are those who seem to be followers of Jesus. These are the posers that we have around us. Here's what I mean. I want us to examine verse 13 for a moment. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went and was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. There are those who may have said that they were believers. We encounter this all the time. People say, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a believer in Jesus. Depending on what country or culture that you're in, I'm a believer in Jesus. But we all know that just because a person says he or she is a Christian doesn't mean that he or she really is one. I don't even care if they're a pastor or deacon, elder, or what. If they are advocating something completely antithetical to the word of God, they are not Christian. They are not a follower of Jesus. 
They know the lingo. They might have degrees. They might have titles. They may have attended services, listened to Christian preachers, been there themselves. But none of these things means that a person is saved. None of those things means that a person truly knows who Jesus is. They may have even stepped into the waters of baptism. Notice that Simon believed and was baptized. You you know, Satan has done a good job confusing many Christians when it comes to the subject of baptism. Baptism doesn't save. It doesn't wash your sins away. And it doesn't guarantee that you are going to heaven. And although some believe that if they get baptized, then nothing can take them away from God because of that. It's almost as if they believed if they could sneak into the tank and get baptized, then they could do anything they wanted to. But God had to let them into heaven no matter what. Well, that's not how God works. And when you even you hear passages like 1 Peter, this baptism now saves you. It's talking not about literally stepping into the water, but it's the idea of your 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 person, your soul, your heart being given to God and the waters of baptism symbolically cleanse you and present you with a clean conscience to God. It's always been clear that God looks at the heart in scripture. And here we have a man whose heart is not sincere. That's what we need to realize is that people who are posers are individuals whose hearts aren't really sincere. They don't really believe in the depth of the heart because God knows the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. According to 1 Samuel 16, 7, he knows our heart. He knows your heart. And knows that if we are sincere or not, if we're just going through the motions. And here we can see that though Simon had an outward show of faith, he really doesn't know Jesus personally. And while Simon is curious and a confusing character, the next episode is one of the most confusing in all of Scripture. What happens next? In fact, we've some have built entire doctrines and denominations out of this text. Let's look at verse 14 through 15 for a moment. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. And soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's stop there. The Bible says very clearly that the Holy Spirit comes into a person when they believe. In fact, here is the only example of Scripture where we have someone receiving the Holy Spirit after they believe through the laying on of the apostles' hands. This is it, the only time. So we must ask ourselves, what's going on here? Especially as we look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we often talk about as being prescriptive or descriptive. It's either telling us what to do, or it's simply describing what had happened. And here, I don't think is something that's prescriptive, but it is descriptive, especially when we learn the cultural context and the things that are going on around it. So let's break this passage down a bit. We, can, we can't understand this passage 
unless we understand who the Samaritans were. Everybody got that. You can't understand the passage and who you know or who if you don't understand who the Samaritans were. You, I mean, if you if you don't know, if you can't figure that out, and I'm not just saying figure that out, but if you don't understand who they were within the cultural context, you don't understand the situation that is going on. And let me break this down. We talked a bit about this a couple of episodes ago. You see that the Samaritans were considered to be half-breed heretics. And we saw last week that they were a mix of Jewish and Assyrians in race and religion. And we learned last week that the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans went back a thousand years. It was due to the fact that the Samaritans were part, uh, were part Jewish and had set up a rival temple to the Jewish temple on Mount Gerizim. But Jews had actually destroyed it years later. And their tensions were both racial and religious, with the two barely, barely interacting with one another. And having that knowledge, I want us to look at verse 14 through 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, I know I've read that a few times already, but it's extremely important that we really get a lay of the land and understand the details as they're being presented, because they are very important for us to understand this passage. Why did God delay in giving the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans? If we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe, why was it delayed for them? And why were the apostles sent? Okay, these are questions we have to ask if we're going to understand this passage. Now, I know this is a little technical for some of you and you're a little confused, but I want us to just pause for a moment because the, the two questions that I just asked are extremely important for us to really understand and apply this passage to our lives. It was because, this is why there was a delay, it was because the Samaritans were in danger of setting up a rival religion just like they did before. But here we have God delaying, giving the Spirit, and making sure that it had come from the apostles. It was very important. So here, here's what I'm trying to say here. This view supports Jesus' words to another Samaritan, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Again, stay with me, and all of this is going to make sense in just one moment. I'm building a case, and I need to lay it layer by layer. When Jesus interacted with the Samaritan woman in, in John 4, we read this, and it starts in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim that it is here at Mount Gerasim where our ancestors worship? Remember what I just said. They had set up a rival temple to the one in Jerusalem. And there was now this disagreement on who really had the right worship of God in the right locale, because it's extremely important in the ancient world that location I mean, it plays a pretty important role in understanding uh, who God is and who was the right God. Jesus replied in verse 21, 
Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes from the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so that those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, why is this important to our discussion that I bring up John 4 and the location of Mount Gerizim and why the Samaritans worship there and why the Holy Spirit was being delayed? We see that the woman cited Gerizim as the home of the true religion of Judaism. Jesus corrects her thinking and wants her to know that Jews have the true religion of God. In fact, salvation comes from them, their, their people, and their, their history, and, and their God. But God here is showing that he's not going to be determined by location, but through the Messiah. And the key part of the verse that is relevant to our discussion is actually verse 22. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews. But there was danger with them coming to know Jesus that they would set up another group different from the early church. By having the apostles, who were Jewish, be the ones who would convey God's spirit to the Samaritans, they were showing that salvation came through the Jews and that the Samaritans couldn't set up an alternative religion. They had to see that they were part of this new group developing based on Judaism with Christ being the cornerstone and the teaching of the apostles as the foundation. And this view is further confirmed by Paul in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also the Gentile. Greek is another way of referring to the Gentiles. Actually, some translations have Greek, but here it's Gentile. And Greek is another time way of referring to Gentiles, those who were born outside of the covenant of God, namely us. So here's the situation. The Samaritans, who were half Jew and half Gentile, had to understand that they were part of God's greater church and couldn't set up an alternative religion or site. They were being brought into one people of God. Now, this is radical, because what this is talking about is how we should not be divided by cultures or expressions, but we are one people, no matter what our ethnicity is, that we are one people of God. That's what God is saying there. That's how much he values it. He doesn't want you to go up and set up your own form away from everybody else. He wants it to be one people of God, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And we have to understand we're rooted in faith, but even here, their ethnicity couldn't be a factor that separated them. Isn't that radical? If we would see cultures the way that God does, I mean, God loves all peoples, but we fail often to see, especially in the book of Acts, how God brings people together, crossing ethnic boundaries to make us one people of God. Let's get back to our passage. Here we see 
that God shows those who are really his. That's what's going on here. To show that the Samaritans are really a part of God's people. This is not referring to a second baptism or a second work of grace or a way to differentiate those who were more spiritual or who needed to be equipped for a greater work of ministry. I, I, I have to say that I disagree with those viewpoints. I respect them, but I disagree. It's God's way of showing that there is only one people and that they are connected despite their race and historical differences. Now, this plays in every culture. Whether you're in Africa and you are part of, part of the Hutus and then you have Tutsis, whether you're in Ireland and you're dealing with people from uh, IRA or are part of the uh, Northern Ireland or whether you're, whether you're in some place or state in India and you have differences between different groups and different tribes that are there and states and languages and districts, all of those things. Or even in America, this is more than black or white. I mean, this is about us being one people of God, and that's how much God values it. I can't emphasize this enough. When I hear people say that the gospel is not about racial reconciliation, I'm saying you don't necessarily understand all the implications that the gospel has. Is that God is showing that he has purchased a bride for himself, one people that he has made them into, though he has been brought them in from all different tribes, tongues, races, that he wants us to be one people. That transcends all nationalities, all ethnicities, all other allegiances. He brings us together there. And when I see other people trying to make this about the Holy Spirit coming in all the different ways, they miss the cultural implications. And that's where we live. This is where I get very, very frustrated with some of my brothers and sisters because they want to create a hierarchy of those who are more spiritually in tune than others. And using this as some type of second baptism as if the first weren't enough. And if you were more spiritual, you would get that. Rather than seeing it as it is of people coming together. You know, there's a reason why in scripture, when we look at the Ten Commandments, you have the first set of the, the Ten Commandments talking about our relationship with God. And the second part of the Ten Commandments talking about our relationships with people. And that's why when Jesus was asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love what? Your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's talking about. And that's why when he's asked about who his neighbor is later on, he tells the story about a Samaritan because it's talking about people that are different from different ethnic backgrounds and crossing boundaries and showing love. Boom. It's there. Can't you see it? It's so right in our faces. And when I see so many of my brothers and sisters saying that the Bible doesn't talk about race or talk about ethnicity, we just need to focus on the gospel. This is part, one of the applications of the gospel and how it works out in the middle of our worlds. And God cares a great deal about that. He lays it out. It's crazy. I mean, how does God do this? To show that the Samaritans were really his people so the Jews would accept him? Well, he confers his spirit upon them. All who are believers in Christ receive God's Holy Spirit to show that we are a part of God's family. And in every case, except this one, it happens when we believe in Jesus. As we read, 
give, just to give you a, a biblical example here, text, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. Notice the spirit. It's showing that when we receive the spirit of God, it brings us in, and we all share the same spirit. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. The apostles come and lay hands on these Samaritan believers and they receive the Holy Spirit. If you are a true believer in Christ, then God gives his spirit to you. Here's another reason why I believe that Simon was not a true believer, by the way. He wanted to buy the spirit. He saw it given. Why did he see his fellow Samaritans receive the spirit and not him? Why didn't he receive the spirit? Why didn't they lay hands on him? Or did they lay their hands on him? And he didn't receive the Spirit because he wasn't a true believer. God gives his Spirit to those who truly believe in him. The Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin and leads us to righteousness. And if you're still living in sin without conviction, it means that you do not have the Spirit and you are not a true believer in Jesus. As we read in Romans 8, 9, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Conditional word there, if. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. Believers feel conviction, and that leads to repentance. Unbelievers may feel conviction, but they don't repent. If you feel conviction and not repenting, then you're a lot like Simon the sorcerer. As Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, obey my commandments. This is where the rubber meets the road. If you really know Jesus, then you will try to do what he says. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. We all do. But as my mentor once told me years ago, you know, it's bad to fall off the horse, but it's worse to stay in the mud puddle. Meaning that you might fail, you might fall, you might sin, fall off the proverbial horse, if you will. And if you stay there, that's bad. But you got to, repentance is getting back up. If you really know Jesus, then you're going to try to do what he says. You will fight sin. You will try to live in obedience to his commands. Don't think you're exempt or that God will understand. God is not okay with us staying in sin. He died to take it away. I mean, doesn't the crucifixion kind of show us how God feels about sin? There are so many who think that because they have an experience of some sort that they're saved. But God goes so far to make it very clear in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Woo! I mean, what is it that makes a person a follower of Jesus? It's really shown in our lives, our obedience, which can only happen if we have the Spirit of God in us, convicting us of sin and pushing us to righteousness. And God gives his Spirit to them and then connects them to his other people. We saw that the Samaritans were in danger of setting up their own religion. But with the apostles having to be the ones who gave the Spirit, they were showing that they were one people. And they had one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. We are one people. This goes to show that God cares a great deal about our unity and belonging to a local body of believers. And as Christians, God wants us to be organized under leaders. Here it was the apostles and showed that they were part of a group of people, of believers in Jesus. Are you a part of God's people? I'm not just talking about attending a worship service, but united together, locked arm in arm in mission to show God's love and display his kingdom to the world. You know, another thing that happens is that God confirms them by his power here. God gives his spirit to help them live the way God intends and desires them to live. Simon saw the spirit given to them. We don't know what he saw. Perhaps it was tongues to again show that they were part of God's people, just like the Jews had been on Pentecost. Speaking in tongues is not the issue here, although some people want to make it so. They want to really read into it, even though it doesn't say that exactly. But then they want to say, well, what did they see? What did they see? What did they see? I mean, that's not the purpose of this passage. The purpose of the passage was to show that the Samaritans were God's people in the same way that the Jews were. Moreover, the sign that we are God's people is not tongues, but it is the power of God at work in our lives and is revealed in the fruit of the Spirit being seen in and through us. Which means love for God and others, peace in your life, goodness, being patient with other people, kindness, faithfulness in the midst of difficulty, and self-control. These are the signs that we are part of God's people. And we're all going to fail in this. Spoiler alert, we are going to fail. But again, we continue to go back. We continue to offer ourselves up to God. We continue to experience his joy and his peace. We don't live by guilt and shame, but we live in the knowledge that he died and shed his blood to forgive us of our sins, to give us clear consciences in the sight of God. These are the signs that we are God's people. I have seen so many Christians who want the power. They want the tongues. They want the miracles. But they don't want the obedience and the everyday things. These are the people that have a form of godliness but deny the power because they don't live by it. And that's where we come back to Simon. Simon saw the Holy Spirit given by the hands of the apostles and then tried to bribe them to get that power which showed he really didn't get it. He wanted the outward. He wanted the control. He wanted the status. And he wanted the respect it brought. 
we can see that some try to use God to gain status and power. Notice what Simon does in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Here it is. He wants the power and he offers money to get it. He wants power like the apostles, better than the power he had before, a power that brings status and respect. He wanted people to think of him as having a deep connection with God and having insight that others did not have. He wanted power, a special power that makes him more spiritual and more special than those around him. We have to remember something. We can't hustle God. When I was in the city of Chicago for many years, you'd meet people that were trying to hustle, meaning that they're trying to trying to, to steal from you, get you to believe something. I mean, trying to pull a fast one over on you. And we cannot fool, trick, coerce, or manipulate God, which is what hustling is. We can't fool God. I'm not sure why we think we can fool him, we think that we can pacify him or trick him, give him just enough that we can have heaven in the future, but fun in the world. After all, everything is okay in moderation. It's what we tell ourselves. We can't hustle or manipulate God. He's through, throughs it. Peter saw right through Simon's duplicity and says in verse 20 and 21, but Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. I mean, what's your problem? You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Your heart's all messed up, dude. He wanted the Holy Spirit and was willing to pay for it. Peter said that Simon didn't have any part with God and what God was doing among the Samaritans. His heart was not right. We can't fool God. We can't buy off God. Peter knew that the Holy Spirit is the confirming present that comes with salvation, a gift of God. We can't manipulate God or try to get him and use him for other purposes. God doesn't play that. And we must remember that God wants our heart. I go back to that again. God wants the heart. He wants your heart. Does he have your heart? Didn't Peter say that Simon's heart was not right? Time and time again, the scripture speaks to our heart. We want the rules, but he wants to live in a close relationship. Following rules is pretty easy, but cultivating a relationship is very hard. Nevertheless, that's what God requires relationship with us from the heart. And this is where we lose our focus, especially when we are talking to those who don't know Jesus. We think that if we can get them to simply stop sinning, then we've won them. But moral conformity has never been the goal. The gospel is not making about making a person more moral or some type of behavior modification, as if it was to get Simon to stop being a sorcerer. It's about the heart. Simon's outward behavior was changed, but his heart wasn't. He just wanted to replace his sorcery with a more Christian version of it. The real question is, does God have your heart? If he has a hard heart, then everything will change from the inside out. That's it. If he has your heart, everything will change from the inside out. Imagine for a moment that a person has heart failure. We put creams and ointments on their chest, but, but does that take the heart failure away? No, not at all. They need a transplant. I mean, they need bypass. Morality is putting creams and ointments on, but God gave his son to die so that we could have his heart. 
He wants our heart, and then he desires that we must turn from our sin and honor him as God. And that requires repentance. Notice what Peter says to Simon. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you were full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. We have to turn from our sin and honor God as God. Simon didn't need to repent of being a magician, but of misunderstanding the root of the gospel and why he even wanted the spirit. He needed to treat God and his salvation with respect. We need to give God the honor due him as God. It means giving him the center position of our lives so that he flows into every other part of our lives. It does mean to treat God with respect, awe, and admiration, giving him the place that is due him. We are to treat him with the honor he deserves. Does Simon repent? He asks Peter to pray for him so that nothing that Peter said would happen. Church history actually says that Simon doesn't repent, becomes the father of many heresies. He failed to truly honor God as God. I think that we've forgotten what it means to honor others. Some time ago, I took my family to the Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C., and witnessed what is commonly known as the changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. When the change ceremony is going on, no one talks. It's silent. Why? Out of respect. Remembering the sacrifice that so many have made for us. We honor those who have given their lives for our country. Who else do we honor? Who do you honor in your culture? That's who we honor in our culture. And I know that we have many listeners in several different countries of the world, in Canada, and Mexico, and the UK, and South Africa, and India, and Pakistan, and Indonesia. I mean, we have listeners all over the world. Who do you honor? Who is worthy of your respect? For those who come from many Asian countries, you place a great deal of emphasis on honoring your father and mother. The Bible tells us to honor father and mother, and we are to honor those in authority, whether we like them or not, whether we disagree with them or not, we are to honor them. We, also, we are also to honor the aged among us, or those in authority over us, whether they are honorable or not. We do so because of the position that they have. And God deserves honor most of all. If honor is based upon person, character, and what has been accomplished, there is no greater honor than is due God. Notice what happens next. Simon had said, pray to the Lord for me, in verse 24, that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. And then we transition in verse 25. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. 
they continued to preach, made their way back to Jerusalem, and as they were, continued to preach to the villages of the Samaritans. As God continued to extend his kingdom in the hearts of men and women from different cultures and background. You know, this passage at first is very confusing, but I hope for you it's become clear. God wants to transform hearts and minds to bring them into his body to accomplish his mission on the earth, seeking to expand his kingdom by continuing to testify about Jesus and what he has accomplished on man's behalf. And I want to make sure that you're a part of that. I don't want you to be like Simon the sorcerer. So I want to ask you a question. Do you believe? Are you part of his body that is called the church? Are you living for Christ in such a way that you are expanding his kingdom? Well, let's make it simple. Is your heart right before God? If not, then all of us, if all of our, any of our hearts are wrong, we are required to repent, to turn away from and turn to God. Don't let your repentance, though, be like Simon's. Turn to God with the entirety of your heart and honor God as God as he has revealed himself in Christ. Before we close out today, I want us to come back together in just a moment after I pray for some announcements and things that we want to share with you about some exciting things that are coming up. Before we get to that, let's take a moment and I'd like to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of those who are within the sound of my voice. Lord, there are those who feel like they are like Simon, that they're pretenders, posers, that they pretend to be holy, but they are living under the shadow of their own hypocrisy. Lord, you know how we all fail, how we all fall, how we all struggle, how we all sin, and yet you still love us. And Lord, help us to turn back to you with true repentant hearts. Not only agreeing with you that our deeds are evil, but desiring a genuine change of ways. And Lord, please show us how we are to build relationships with other believers in Christ who may look and sound different, who we may even have a history with in some way, shape, or form, but you desire to bring us together as one body to display your glory to a lost and dying world. Lord, I pray that all of those, no matter where they are listening, that they might be drawn to you and then they might do business with you today. And that those who have been posers and pretenders, that they might truly surrender and invite you in to be the Lord and Savior of their lives. Bless them, be with them, but don't let them go until they truly understand the depth of your love for them. And Lord, please give us all hope. We need it. We need your direction. We need your intercession. And we need you to show up in our lives to remind us that you love us with an everlasting love. Be with us and bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. I want to thank you for tuning in to listen to Apollos Watered. We know that you have your choice of great podcasts that are out there and you choose to listen to us. And we are so grateful for you listening, uh, listening to us and just being a part of the Apollos Watered army.
And if you want to know more about our ministry, I would recommend you going online to apolloswater.org. That's one P and two L's. Apolloswater.org to learn more about what we believe God has called us to do and how you can partner with us to help water the world for Jesus Christ. I also want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you in part by Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're in need of a realtor, she is it. And that's it for today's episode. If this has helped you so that you can water your world, then hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, and just tell us about how God has touched you, how God is using this ministry in your life so that you can water your world. We really want to be able to hear from all of the Apollos army that's out there. And please pray for us. And if you feel a desire to support us, just go to our website in that upper right-hand corner, hit the support us button. And just to let you know that this will be one of the last episodes of season one. We'll have a couple more yet to go, but at the conclusion of this season, we're going to take a bit of a break and get ready for season two. We have so many things that we want to share with you. So many exciting details are coming together behind the scenes and uh, it's, it's all coming together rather quickly, but it does take its time and we want you to be aware of all things that are going on so that you can keep up and be fully informed as well as be participants with us as we continue to water the world for Jesus. I want to thank our team, Kevin, Melissa, Eliana, Rebecca, Donovan, Chris, all of those who make up the Apollos Water team. I couldn't do any of this without them. Thank you for listening, everybody. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Oh, 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 oh,